go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the message this morning is God's comfort in dying for Christ. It's really part one because it's the whole chapter, but uh, there's a lot in the chapter. So we'll go through verses 1 through 11 this morning and, and Lord willing, we'll finish it uh, the following Sunday. But in chapter 1, we saw God's comfort for life's plans. And I've shared this the last couple of weeks, but it continues to grow in, its, uh, in, in the comfort of God. As I said, chapter one, we saw God's comfort in life's plans because, again, uh, our plans in life aren't what we plan them out to be many times. And so God comes in and comforts us when they're not. In chapter two, we saw God's comfort in restoring sinning saints. Like the man accused of, again, sleeping with his mother-in-law. He was excommunicated from the church and um, to, to hopefully learn his lesson about sin. He repented and... He received God's comfort for restoration. Chapter 3 showed God's comfort in the ministry of Christ. And boy, when you're in ministry, you need the comfort of Christ. Chapter 4, last week we saw God's comfort in... uh, um, I'm sorry, now we're going to uh, look at uh, God's comfort in the ministry of suffering for Christ. That was chapter 4. God's comfort in, uh, in the ministry of suffering for Christ. Because again, there are times that we suffer, you know, for Christ in ministry. In this section, chapter 5, is on the comfort of God, all right, in dying for Christ, martyrdom for Christ. We will see the comfort of God in that ministry. In this section, Paul compares our present tribulation mentioned in chapter 4, verses 8 through 18, with our future transformation in verses 1 through 11. And he even has a more amazing things to tell us. Now he's going to tell us about a great change in verses 1 through 5, and then about a great challenge in verses 6 through 11. Now he's going to tell us what happens to us when we die. First, we have the picture of that experience in verses 1 through 4. So let's begin in chapter 5 with verse 1a. And Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Paul compares our body, our earthly house, body that we're living in, he compares it to a tent. It's our earthly house while we're here on earth. When Jesus came in the flesh, John says he dwelt among us in John 1.14. The word dwelt means to tent or to encamp. So Jesus set up camp. He came and he set up camp. He set up his tent on earth and he lived among us. And the same word is used for the Old Testament tabernacle where God dwelled with his people Israel all through the wilderness journey. There wasn't anything beautiful about the tent when you looked at it. That is from the outside. But the inside was a whole different story. Inside there was gold and silver. There were curtains made of fine linen of purple, scarlet and blue. And the best part of all of it was that the Shekinah glory of God hovered over the whole thing. It was the same with the Lord Jesus. His body was covered with the flesh of man. But inside was the glory of God. Our body... The outward man, Paul said, is perishing. Every day, 
his parachute getting older and older. It's wearing out. Even the best made tents leak and they tear after a while. Paul is talking about that wonderful day when this old tent will finally be taken down, destroyed by sin. But Paul has some really good news for us. He says there's a brand new replacement available and it's guaranteed forever. And in verses 1b through 3, Paul is now going to give us God's word about these things. Now, it may be because of Paul's recent, recent encounter with death that it caused him to think about, uh, to think more about what happens to a believer, you know, at the moment they die. He had no doubt that the, the moment a believer dies, he goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He also strongly believed in the bodily resurrection of the believer in 1 Corinthians 15. But what happens to to the believer between death and resurrection? Is the body stripped? Is that person stripped of their body and their soul? Is he left naked and tossed into eternity? No way. Paul has already talked about the fact that our resurrected body will be basically a spiritual body. This earthly body is subject to the natural laws of our environment. But our resurrection body is going to be a spiritual body subject to spiritual laws. The believer's body will have abilities and possibilities that our human body doesn't have. And we can go back and look at Jesus, for example. The body that Jesus had when he resurrected, it was the same body that was nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb. But now in his spiritual body... He could do things that that were impossible to do with the human body. Remember, he could enter a room without going through a door. He could appear and disappear at will. He could do things that the natural body couldn't do. So again, he could be touched and he could be handled and he could eat. In his resurrection body, he could defy the law of gravity. I mean, why not? He made the laws of gravity. He could ascend to heaven. He could sit down at the right hand of the Father. So to what degree does the natural body and the spiritual body, are they connected? We don't know. But there seems to be some kind of a connection. Christ's resurrected body is described as glorious in Philippians 3.21. And we're assured that our body is going to be like his. And so Paul suggests here that we will have covering, we will have a covering for the soul <clears throat> between the time that we die and the time that we're resurrected. And he calls this covering a house. <clears throat> Notice in the second part of 1B, in the second part of verse 1 and 1B, he says again, well, let's just read the whole verse. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Notice, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, it's a house. We have a house made for us. And it's definitely something more permanent and lasting than a tent. You see, a building suggests a strong, well-founded, permanent structure. Paul said, this house is not made with hands. Not made with hands. A word used to describe divine and heavenly workmanship. This is in comparison with something made out of material construction like wood, hay, and stubble. 
And Paul uses all of these expressions to describe the home of the believer's soul between death and resurrection. So let's look at these different ideas altogether. The believer's natural body is like a tent, well suited for our present earthly journey and for this environment. But it's temporary and it's short term. But it can be taken down at any moment. Because this body, this tent, it is very fragile. Even when it's at its best. It doesn't take much to take it down. When this tent, this earthly body is taken down, we will find that God has already made provisions for the believer's soul. To be a, to be a house. To be housed in a suitable God-made dwelling. While we're waiting for resurrection and transformation of this body. So this in-between death and resurrection home for the soul is eternal. It's not temporal. And it's not natural, but spiritual. It can be affected by the things that attack and cause harm to the believer's body. And at the same time, it's not his resurrection body. Even though it may well be related to it. Just as his present natural body will be uh, related to it as well. Paul is so sure of what he's talking about that he says, notice, we have, notice, we have, present tense, we have a building from God. It's as good as done. It's a guaranteed thing. It's a done deal. It's waiting for you. It's waiting for us in heaven. Paul keeps going and he, key, uh, he keeps uh, emphasizing our desire. Notice verse 2. For in this we groan, speaking of this earthly body, this tent. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, there's a lot of groans and a lot of sighs while we're in this old tent. Paul suffered a lot of painful attacks on his body. But Paul never allowed them or, or his circumstances to get him down. But he probably moaned and groaned a lot when he was under the whip. When he was sick or when he was exposed to the elements without any you know, proper covering. The word for earnestly desiring here, it suggests longing or yearning. People who have suffered a lot in their body, they just long, they just yearn to be free from this body. We've grown in this body. We want out of it. The time comes when we long for heaven. We long to put on the house that God has made for us. This building to dwell in that he has. Jesus said in John 14 too, In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Provisions have been made for us up in heaven. And then Paul mentions our great fear in verse 3. Notice he says, if indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. The human body is an important part of us. The soul just kind of cringes in sadness at the idea of it being taken away from us. But here, Paul agrees that, that, that one reason why we long for our heavenly covering is because the idea of being naked, uh, of a naked soul is both humiliating and troubling. We, we cringe at the thought. Because our body is an important part of us. So it's comforting to know that God has made a way for us. Uh, so, so no such worry you know, is allowed to overwhelm us. Paul says, we shall not be found naked. And then Paul points to the reality in verse 4. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, 
but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. He says, as long as we're in our present bodies, so full of moans and groans and sighs, we have this deep down desire for something more permanent. We're hindered by it because of our mortality. We're hindered by it as long as we're in these bodies here. It's not that we want to get rid of our body. We just want to move into our new house. Not made with hands. But most people have some real doubts about death. And real fears. Because it's the merging of the known with the unknown. You know, you know when, we, when Jesus went around and he was... For, you know, to, to show himself after he resurrected... And he was showing to people that, hey, it's still me. It's, <clears throat> it's still the Jesus that you knew before I was crucified. And that he knew you. And that they knew him. They recognized him. Nothing really had changed as far as, you know, a relationship. Knowing one another. And he did that to merge the known with the unknown. Because just people just, it, it's something they haven't experienced yet. So it, there, there are fears. There are unknowns about it. But again, Jesus was merging the known with the unknown. But now comes the guarantee in verse 5. He says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So Paul is basing his hope of the future and his expectation of of the future on a promise. The source of the promise is God. And if God has made a promise, you you can bet your life he's going to keep it. He is the source of the promise and the source of the hope that we have. The security for the promise is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming to dwell in the believer is the down payment, the security deposit, if you will, that the best is yet to come. Paul's not finished yet. He has set before us a great change in verses 1 through 5 here. But now he sets before us a great challenge in verses 6 through 11. And he starts with a perspective of death. Look at verse 6. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Paul says we're at home in this body. Because this is right now, you know, our bodies are adapted to this environment. So we're we're, we're at home in this body. It was made by the Creator. And even when it gets sick or it's disabled... Or it grows old and weak, we hold on to it for dear life. You know, we're like not willing to let it go. Because it's such a dear part of us. We, we nourish it and we cherish it. A body is important to the human life, to true human life. When we accept Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit immediately makes our body His temple. He comes to dwell in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So you see, we're at home in the body. But we all know that one day, as Paul says, we're going to die. And we're going to have to leave this body. And the body will become a lump of lifeless clay. And it's going to, be, and it's going to decay. And it's going to become earth again. And, and this is what most people fear. The unavoidable consequence of sin is death. So we can't escape it. Every time I do a funeral, I'm reminded of that. But every time I think about the resurrection, I think of the provision that God has made for sin. But Paul doesn't want us to dwell fearfully on these things. Look at verse 6. 
So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are always confident, Paul says. That means to be of good courage. That means we don't have anything to be afraid of. All possibilities of death have been taken care of through the Lord. And we can be sure that, of that no matter what happens, it's taken care of. And besides, there's another side to this matter. As long as we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We know God's presence is with us in a spiritual way. Because He stands by His promises. Like the one He made in Matthew 28, 20. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we're not yet in His immediate presence. We can't see the place that He came from. You know, the place of glory that, that, that he and who was with his father before the world was created. So in that sense, as long as we're at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. So during these days, they were absent from the Lord. Look at verse 7 then. We walk by faith and not by sight. So until we're with the Lord. All right. So during these days that we are absent from the Lord, we walk by faith and not by sight. This is how we're supposed to live. Faith doesn't walk by the sights or circumstances or the sights of circumstances. We walk by the word of God. And Paul already said this in chapter 413. He says, I believed and therefore I spoke. Circumstances may not be pleasant sights. But the scriptures are inspiring and encouraging words. And the writer of Hebrews says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is unseen reality. It is done. It's done. Faith will give us the right perspective about life after death that the flesh can never do. The world walks by sight. So you see, death is scary to them. It's frightening to them. It's a frightening thing to them. And that's why they often mock death. They mock it to try to show their boldness in facing the unknown. Look at verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. In verse 8, Paul talks more about leaving this earthly life. Paul couldn't see anything to be afraid of when it came to dying. Because when a believer comes to the end of this life's journey, he looks for the last time at all of those around him, closes his eyes, and then opens them to look straight in the face of Jesus. He's absent from the body. But he's present with the Lord. Immediately, there's no limbo. There's no purgatory. There's no probationary period of any kind. You close them here, you open them there. But this is not the case with the lost. They're absent from the body, but they're also absent from the presence of the Lord. And Paul now gives us a new view of death But uh, not only a new view of death, but a new view of duty. Look at verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. We are to make that our aim. 
to make it our focus, our labor. We are to be pleasing to Him. We are to make pleasing uh, uh, to our Lord and our holy ambition. It should be pleasing to Him. Our aim is to please Him. And that should be the great, our, our great focus of our lives here. Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do those things that please Him, the Father. And that should be our goal, our aim, to always be pleasing to the Father. So many people strive in this life for so many worthless things. We should strive to please the Lord down here in this world while we're away from Him. As we surely will when we are at home with Him. Paul himself was driven by a holy ambition. That's what drove Paul. That's what pushed Paul to do the things that he did. He had a holy ambition for God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If then, or a better word is, since then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. Three things. Three things about Christ the Savior and the believer are given in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, which encourage a standard of behavior that is, a, that is much higher than the standards of this world. First, the power of Christ. In verse 1 of Colossians 3, 1, if then you have, uh, if you were raised with Christ, the power of Christ, if then you were raised with Christ, sin always lowers Sin never lifts. Sin lowers standards. Sin lowers morals. Sin lowers character. Genesis chapter 3 records, When sin entered the world, the fall of man came. Notice, it wasn't the rise of man. It was the fall of man. But the power of Christ, it results in raising the soul from condemnation to a new life in Jesus Christ. So our behavior should conform to our new life in Christ. The power of Christ who raised, uh, who raised in conversion can also raise in conduct. The second thing that we see in Colossians chapter 3, 1 and 2 is secondly, the place of Christ. He said, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. The believer should be interested in things above where Jesus is exalted in being seated at the right hand of God. If the believer is busy seeking things above, he won't be found seeking and doing things below. Things below in character. And then the third thing is the passion for Christ. Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. Where your affections are is where you are. That's what Jesus said. Your treasures are, you know, your heart is wherever your treasures are. A person's affections determine their behavior. If the believer keeps his affections focused on Jesus Christ, who is above, he will not be troubled by the actions of corruption below. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here's something Paul's already touched on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that is the judgment seat. The judgment seat is a fact. 
Every believer will have his life reviewed here at the judgment seat. And the judgment seat is serious business. At the judgment seat, there's going to be rebukes and there's going to be rewards. It's a judgment seat. It's not a mercy seat. What we do in church will determine our position in the kingdom of God. We're going to have to face the things that we've done in in, in our earthly bodies, both the good things and the bad things. We're going to be held accountable for for what we have and haven't done in our time here. With our body, with our talents, with our money, our influence, our opportunities, and the advantages that we have, we're going to be held accountable for those things. Did we use them for the glory of God? How did we use them? Our true character is going to be revealed. We must all appear. We must all appear. Now, when it says we must all appear, it can be said we must all be on display or we may all be displayed. We'll be exposed to God's searchlight. We'll be exposed to His all-seeing eye and our true character is going to be revealed. And there's not going to be any disguises that we can put on. There's not going to be any trickery that we can use to hide what we did and or didn't do down here. And it's going to be too late to go back and try to make things right or do better. There will be rebukes and there will be rewards. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Can you imagine? Every secret thing. The thing that you think you only know. Then all tears will be wiped away. But our position in the kingdom will be set. This is a sobering fear. A sobering sobering fear of God. And it should be uppermost in our minds. If our case as believers, think of it, if our case as believers is so serious, what about those that are lost? Who must stand before a far more terrible judgment, which is the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Listen to what it says. John says, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence. But they, those that are standing there at the throne, a white throne, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead. The death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. And then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus said, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is not going to be a pleasant place. Let's close with verse 11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men... But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. The word terror here just means fear. The fear of the Lord. This speaks of the holy respect for God. It's a reverence for a holy God. We see today men do not respect God. One reason is liberal teaching. 
We don't, you know, we don't need to be afraid of God, some, some teach. He's a God of love. They portray God as a sweet, easygoing old man who you can treat just about any way you want. Liberal teaching teaches the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men, which was, is one of the most offensive doctrines around today. So we better not give artificial bread to the people. We need to give them the bread of life, Jesus Christ. As Isaiah said, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And we better not preach a watered down, feel good gospel. Our God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He's a just God. And it's this holy God, this just God, this righteous God who loves you. It's this holy God who wants to save you. But if you don't come to him his way. And there's only one way and that's through Jesus Christ. The truth, the way and the life. If you do not come to him his way. All you can expect is terror. You'll have to come before him in judgment, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. There's too many pulpits that never preach or, or, or mention hell or judgment. And there's not a lot of sermons <clears throat> or the mention of punishment or judgment or hell. And so because it's not, there's a lot of people that think God is just an all loving, no judging God. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, he said, to seek, he said, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And the Hebrew says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We need to have a holy fear of the judgment of God. We need to know that we are going to be held accountable to him. No one, seems to want to, no one seems to want to do anything out of a godly reverence for God. But with a holy respect for God, a person's work for God will be greatly inspired like Paul's was. And then the love of Christ. Verse 14 is mentioned. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ is the love that Jesus has for us, not the love that we have for him. We love him because he first loved us. And then the word compel. It means to move and to control our actions. The love that Jesus has for us should overwhelm us. And it should cause us to fall at his feet as willing servants for what he's done. Paul never got over the fact of Christ's love for him. No one should. It motivated Paul to do a lot of sacrificial service for the Lord. And it should, it should be the same with us. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 16, Come and hear all who, you who fear the Lord, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. And we can all declare what God has done for our soul. Over and over again. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much, Lord. Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us, Lord. And you truly have done so much for our soul. 
And Father, we could never thank you with words, God. They couldn't begin to define or describe, Father, what you have truly done for us, Lord. But Father, may we do it through our words and our works, God. May we live a life that glorifies you. And may we speak words that glorify you, God. And may our words and our works always match. May we be an honorable witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us in these days of darkness, God, to speak truth regardless of how people may react to us, God. Because your word word is truth, God. So, Father, we thank you. And, Lord, we ask now that you bless our time in communion as we take the cup and we take the bread. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we get started...